Well, it is a sincere privilege to be with you. Forgive my back to you momentarily while I grab this music stand. I'm an Italian, meaning I preach with my hands. David's kind invite is a, a sincere privilege, that he would extend a trust to me to address you. He shepherds you in Jesus' name. He's an under-shepherd. He's accountable before the Lord accordingly. And I know he takes that role with the highest conviction. I respect your pastor greatly. When we moved here 13 years ago, I realized pretty quickly that North Creek Presbyterian was a significant force for the kingdom in this region. I came to learn quickly that you essentially were the original church of Mill Creek. Mill Creek is not that old of a city, at least as cities go, but you were one of, if not the very first church, according to my research, in this region. In fact, Mill Creek was started intentionally without any churches in the city limit. I believe you were the first to be incorporated within Mill Creek. So you really are something of, in my view, the original Mill Creek Church. And you have been very faithful in your witness of the message of Jesus, of the power of his spirit, of the gospel message, the kingdom of heaven reaching earth. So when we moved here, it was a priority for me to get to know your pastor at the time, Pastor Paul, who very graciously welcomed me. I met with him initially in his office. I remember when he was celebrating what I believe was 25 years in ministry at the time. And we as a church sent a bouquet of flowers to celebrate his faithfulness, your faithfulness in this community. And when it, when it was that he resigned, when it was time for him to retire, I was very curious as to who God would bring in his place. And I have been so very pleased to see the way Pastor David has stewarded the responsibility of shepherding you, of walking in humility and a vibrant love of Jesus. I'm really grateful for you, Pastor David, and it's an honor to be able to address you and those that you serve in Jesus' name. Today, I want to address you from a teaching entitled, Do Not Worry, and ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. As you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 12. If not, of course, the verses will be up on the screen, so there isn't any need for you to worry. It is a special privilege to be able to address you on a day that you set aside annually to consider how it is that you will be a part of contributing to the work of God's kingdom through his local church, and very specifically, your local church. As you gather today to consider what it is that the Lord has put into your hands that then can be turned and used for his kingdom work. As you weigh this, it is such a joy to address you. Jesus is generous, and we as his people want to learn how to join him in his generosity. Very simply put, I believe the most joyful life available to us is a life that is marked by joining Jesus in his generosity. And as we land in in Luke chapter 12... We're landing in a, a gospel that, for me, is, is my favorite of the four. <gasps> yes, to say you have a favorite gospel among the four, right? And I think for each of us, were we to ask for the raising of hands, some of us would like Matthew. Matthew radiates the message of Jesus through his Jewishness. 
the Jewish Messiah, our Savior, connecting the dots of all the ways in which he fulfilled the promises of the law, the covenant, the prophets. Matthew's gospel is beautiful. And who doesn't love the Sermon on the Mount as a primary place to land in our reading of Scripture? Mark's gospel. Some of us love Mark's gospel because it's clear and brief. (laughs) We can read it more quickly than the others. As a preacher, I'm more prone to go to Mark than any of the others because it just gets straight to the point. Luke's gospel tends to be my favorite for several reasons. The first is Luke thinks the way I think as a Westerner. Luke thinks chronologically. Many cultures around the world don't think that way. But for whatever reason, Luke presented the gospel in chronological order, the happenings of the gospel chronologically. That helps me. I really like that. But also, while Luke continues to allow Jesus to be Jewish, he also tells stories that allow us non-Jewish peoples to have place and space and access with him. It's beautiful. And then, of course, you have the Gospel of John, which if you're an artist, if you're creative, John's your favorite. John is a poet. He's magnificent in his creativity. And so whatever gospel tends to be your favorite, as we land here in Luke chapter 12, we're landing in a text, in a story, in a moment in the teaching and life of Jesus that immediately addresses what we set ourselves to consider this morning. How do we, as those who have proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, handle our stuff? As Jesus now is central in our lives, displacing the God of self, how do we steward possessions and money? Having a biblically informed view of money and stuff is absolutely essential for the disciple of Jesus. It's in Romans 12:2 that we are exhorted to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to study about money from the scriptures because few things, few things in this world will seek to shape us as much as money. That is the need for and the love of it. As Jesus taught us, we cannot serve. It is impossible to serve both God and mammon. Mammon being a spiritual influence that causes us to want to hold to, to love and find our value in or our life through our resources, our money, our possessions. Some of you may be familiar with an author named Randy Alcorn. He writes extensively about eternity, heaven, but also money and possessions. And in one of his books, he says this, We tend to come to the Bible for comfort, not financial instruction. If we want to know about money, we're more apt to pick up the Wall Street Journal or Fortune Forbes or money. Scripture should concern itself with what's spiritual and heavenly. Money is physical and earthly. The Bible is religious. Money is secular. Let God talk about love and grace and brotherhood. Thank you. Let the rest of us talk about money and possessions and do whatever we want with them. 
Well, our culture certainly preaches this message to us incessantly, causing real wrestlings within us. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will be more disciples of our culture with regard to money and possessions than we are disciples of Jesus. And Jesus clearly thinks differently about money and possessions. He speaks about these matters extensively in the Gospels, including the passage we now study. In Luke chapter 12, we reach this moment where Jesus is in the midst of a crowd. They're pressing on him. And suddenly he's presented a question. And this question is something of a conundrum. Someone yells out in the crowd, Master, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus responds with a question, which, by the way, when you study the Gospels, you realize that Jesus rarely answered a question. I think you could count three to four moments where he gave a straight answer. Almost exclusively when he is presented something like this. Or when he's presented a question with an agenda, he simply asks a question back. But here he says this, who made me the arbiter between you two? Why are you asking this of me? He then warns against all kinds of greed, saying that life does not consist of one's possessions. Some may read this text and think, boy, Jesus was quick to go to the greed button. Why was he so quick to accuse this guy asking a question of greed? Contextually, we may not realize exactly what this young man was asking. For an ancient Israeli culture, the oldest son was automatically given the point of a double inheritance, a double portion. It's interesting to reference another biblical story, the moment when the mantle is passing from Elijah to Elisha. And what does Elisha ask for? A double portion. What Elisha is asking for is an oldest son's inheritance. I want everything that is yours to be mine. That's what Elijah was asking for. Elisha, excuse me. And in here in this moment, this younger brother, clearly a younger brother, is asking Jesus to do something that in their culture was never done. So immediately Jesus discerned, boy, the motive from which your mouth speaks is one of greed. Greed. And it's with this in mind that Jesus then tells a story. And it's a story your pastor preached on last week, so I will cover it quickly here. But it sets the context for what we specifically want to study now. Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 34. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, well, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So this young man asking a question motivated by greed, the crowd hears this interaction. Jesus tells a story to continue to warn about greed. And very, very simply, this text tells us that there's the possibility that we can be rich towards God. That God's capacitated us, that God's equipped us, that God's made a way for us to respond to Him. And by the way, whenever we talk about generosity, whenever we talk about money and possessions, whenever we talk about giving, we do so all in the context of worship. Jesus gave everything for me. Jesus, God the Father spent the wealth of heaven so that I can be included in His family. Everything about what I do now is worship. It's response. I didn't go looking for Jesus. He came looking for me. And so now all of my life is a response, which means all of my life is worship. And when we situate resources, giving, generosity, this conversation that we're in, we do so in the context of worship. Jesus is worthy of my worship. He's given everything for me. And here he tells me this, and this is so hopeful to me. He makes it possible for me to learn a way to be rich towards God in my worship. I love that. I'm grateful for that. And Jesus continues. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so he turns from the crowd. And now he's looking at those who are his. And he says, therefore I tell you, based on what I just said. You do not need to worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Now consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. I imagine Jesus points at a bird in the sky. How many of you have ever had the great privilege of going to Israel and, and being on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee? If you have, then you can immediately in your mind's eye recall the setting of this teaching. Jesus is on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee. We go as a church every other year. We'll be going again in 2020. It'll be our fourth trip as a church, and it's one of the greatest joys for me to sit on the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee with disciples of Jesus from Mill Creek Foursquare and consider this teaching with them. And he points to the raven, to the bird flying in the air. And then he says this as well. And consider not just the ravens, but consider how much more valuable you are than birds. Consider how much more valuable you are. Uh, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Isn't that the paradox of worry? That we think we can control outcomes. We think we've got this all in our grasp. And yet, we have really no control whatsoever. The parable told us Jesus could call us home in the next breath. 
we're not guaranteed one more moment. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Why do you worry about the rest? It's above your pay grade is essentially what Jesus is saying. Consider now how the wild flowers grow. So he doesn't just point at the bird of the air, but now he points to the flowers that you've been celebrating. These wildflowers, which by the way, I prefer lilacs. I just wish they lasted longer than two weeks, right? Oh, the smell. I think the new earth will have a perpetual lilac smell. That's, that's my premise. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor, right? Solomon being the king at the zenith of the Israeli kingdom, ancient Israeli kingdom. Not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, is thrown into the fire. For two weeks, lilacs smell good, and then they're gone. How much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And Do not set your heart. Hear this. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagans run after such things. This wasn't Jesus using a slur. He was referencing the greater Greco-Roman system surrounding these disciples of his, these gods that were capricious and cruel that had to be placated and won, manipulated. And Jesus is saying that his father, our father, is so, so so different for the pagans run after such things but your father knows that you need them so seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well oh do not be afraid little flock for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom right, here's the here's the great exchange we might be so singularly focused, worrying about how we're going to accomplish something, how we're going to have enough. And Jesus here blows the entire lid off the entire construct. Do not be afraid. God himself is pleased to give you the kingdom. You are inheritors of everything that matters. It doesn't matter how much change you have in your pocket you are rich in everything about life. You're wealthy in the Father. Sell your possessions then and give to the poor. He calls us to this radical, transformative hold on possessions. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want Jesus to have my whole heart. I don't want to, I don't want one shred of my heart to be kept for myself. I want him to have everything. But I'll tell you, money and possessions 
Well, it sure wants to encroach on my heart in a way that I keep a little bit back for myself. Jesus clearly teaches a different way for his disciples with regard to money and possessions. He calls us out of worry into a fullness of trust of our Father. He points to the birds of the air. He points to the lilies of the field. Neither of these survive on their own without aid. Neither of these are self-sufficient. They need help. They need nourishment from the outside. And yet Jesus points to them and says, look at the aid they receive every year. So too now will those who belong to Jesus, who carry the highest value, value. Value is a strange thing in our world, isn't it? Yeah, values tend to be upside down when it comes to the kingdom of this world or kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. There are many, many, many ways I could illustrate this. Things that would pain all of us. But maybe a a, a whimsical illustration that you'll understand is just this. That as a baseball fan, I grew up collecting baseball cards. And let's be honest what baseball cards are. They're tiny little pieces of cardboard with a picture on them. The cards that were produced during my childhood were produced at such a mass level that they are essentially worthless now in terms of value. But there are some baseball cards that carry such value that people kill for them. Some of you may be familiar with what is considered the most valuable of all baseball cards, the 1952 Topps Rookie Card of Mickey Mantle. Let me remind you what it is. It's a piece of cardboard from the early 1950s. I have a few of those, I think, lingering boxes that my parents used to move that they passed on to me. It's a piece of cardboard from the 1950s with a picture on it. That card, in near mint condition today, now sells for close to $10 million. Value value. So the way we value something is not always the way God values something. But here Jesus states very plainly God's value system. And he says that there is nothing more valuable to him in his heart than you. And that is the essential core message behind his statement, do not worry. Because Jesus says this about our Father. That he takes responsibility for you. That you are not your own. That you are not on your own. That you don't have to fend for yourself. That you're not a self-made woman. You're not a self-made man. But you're in Christ now. And you're beloved of the Father. That singular truth contains within it the possibility to so transform your worldview with regard to money and possessions that you, you, you can transform so much in that that you could hardly recognize your old self. Oh, the ways of Jesus. Where your treasure is. Well, this is what directs our hearts. 
In light of this teaching and many others within Scripture, we've come to understand that while money is amoral, what do I mean by that? The dollar in your pocket is amoral. It's neither good nor evil. It is a piece of paper that in our society has some value attached to it. That's all it is. There's nothing wrong with that dollar bill in your pocket. You don't need to be afraid of it. So while money is amoral, Jesus teaches plainly that there is a power that attaches itself to it. And that power vies for the human heart. Money will either be stewarded well unto eternal reward by disciples of Jesus or will be held poorly and be a constant source of hurt and hang-up in the disciple's life. There really is no middle ground. Look with me up on the screen. You'll see what, what we call at our fellowship a working definition of a steward because this is the worldview that Jesus says needs to be that of one of his disciples. We are stewards. We are stewards. A person who manages another's property or financial affairs. One who administers anything as the agent of another or others. Jesus teaches us plainly in Luke 12 to use our worldly wealth to build purses that will never have a hole in them. To use our worldly wealth to build a different sort of treasure, an eternal one that can never be extinguished, an eternal treasure that will never be exhausted, a treasure that will go with us all the way through the distance of, of time and eternity. This is the call. Stewardship is the call in the life of a disciple of Jesus around money and possessions. What we have, this is what a steward recognizes. What we have, we've been entrusted with. What we have, we've been entrusted with. And our call is to faithfully administer it in a righteous honor of God and a heart for his kingdom. But that isn't always easy, is it? Many of us may have been raised in a, a line of thinking that I earn everything I have in my bank account. And on the one hand, that is absolutely true. Unless you are independently wealthy and the inheritor of something your dad or grandfather or grandparents earned, very few of us are that way, you've worked hard to have what you have. But do realize that the scriptures put this forward, that even your ability to earn is given you by God. Everything we have is because of him. As the letter of James states plainly, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Everything is from him. Another author I really, really enjoy reading is Philip Yancey. When I was probably at my lowest point in life, when I was coming to terms with just how broken of a man I actually am, I read his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. 
It's a book worth reading. But he also writes a book about money and possessions, and in it, he says this, many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some, it involves sexual identity. For others, a battle against doubt. For me, the issue is money. It hangs over me, keeping me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I want to sell all that I own, join a Christian commune, and live out my days in intentional poverty. At other times, I want to rid myself of guilt and enjoy the fruits of our nation's prosperity. Mostly, I wish I did not have to think about money at all. But I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. Yancey's thoughts capture ours well. What do I do? And we tend to, ex- uh, to, to move towards extremes, as he stated. Poverty or extravagance. But let us state very plainly that poverty does not equal piety, nor does one's life consist of possessions. There must be a way of manifesting the stewardship of resources that prioritizes obedience to Jesus. That's the the first priority in money and possessions. How do I obey Jesus in what he's given me? While also allowing for the enjoyment of God's blessings. It is this way that I want to put in front of you just with an idea or construct of four stages of growing in stewardship. Four stages of growing in stewardship. I put this in front of our fellowship every two or three years, just in terms of a a discipleship mandate around money and possessions. Four stages to growing in stewardship. As in everything, please know that as I present these four stages, grace allows us to grow rather quickly in these, and sometimes our brokenness keeps us stuck in a stage for a long time. But oh, may grace abound. May grace abound. Four stages to growing in stewardship. Number one, initial giver. You have an initial giver. Do you remember the very first time you gave in response to Jesus? Do you remember the very first time you gave an offering at church? Or do you remember the very first time a missionary came through town and you were stirred by the possibility of the gospel reaching people who'd never heard the name of Jesus? Do you remember the first time that your faith was stirred And you gave in response to the fact that you know Jesus loves you. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? I grew up in the church. My parents are first generation Christians. I grew up giving in Sunday school. And from the earliest stages I was taught to give, that whatever I earned, I understood that a percentage of my earning was to be given to the Lord. I remember I would get a $5 allowance. And I knew I had to give that 50 cents to the work of the kingdom of heaven. So I was raised in the context of giving as part of my worship. So for me, this initial giving dynamic was something that happened very, very young. But for many of us, this moment of of first giving, it may not have been all that long ago. And whenever we cross the threshold into worship with regard to our resources, whenever we cross the threshold of What am I going to do with my money? And if I give this away, here's the question all of us have to to answer in the back of our heads. If I give this away, am I going to be okay? 
the initial giver has to wrestle with that. A pastoral friend of mine did a a debt-free seminar recently. 41 people came. They added up the total debt of those in attendance, and it passed over half a million dollars. Many of us are hesitant to give because the truth of the matter is, is we've been living rather out of bounds with the way we steward our resources and possessions. And even there, I want to just proclaim to you that if you feel like you've been living out of bounds, if you feel like this is an area that's unsubmitted to the Lordship of Jesus, you can get help. There are means for you to grow. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The promise and hope of the gospel is always this. He's never done working on me. So even where we feel conviction, like I've not been living the way of Jesus with regard to money and possessions, if your takeaway is this, I want to start today, there is hope. And there's real practical ways for you to receive aid. A lot of people in our fellowship do something like Financial Peace University. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. Uh, There was a, a, a program prior to that one. The guy's name was Larry Burkett. How many of you remember Larry Burkett? So my father-in-law demanded that Jennifer and I go through Larry Burkett's financial system before he would give me the blessing of her hand in marriage. I'm grateful he did that. For the first two years of our marriage, we functioned on a cash-based system. And we knew where every dollar we were spending was going. This can really help us. Four stages to growing in stewardship. Number one, initial giver. Number two, regular giver. A regular giver has developed what we now would call a habit of generosity. The initial giving has now morphed into, whoo, all right, I can give some resources away and be okay. We've begun to discover the joy of giving. The joy of giving. The joy of blessing another person. The joy of the random act of kindness. The joy of putting something in the offering plate. Knowing that together our resources are going to kingdom work. Regular giving. For the regular giver, usually we give when we're paid. For most of us, we get paid twice a month. And and for a regular giver, in some way, shape, or form, some of that finds its way towards the local church, towards missionaries, whatever it would be that the Lord would put in front of us. This is the beginning of what would be known as a spiritual discipline, the spiritual discipline of generosity or of giving. And we've grown in our walk with Jesus to reach this point. But there's more, four stages to growing in stewardship. First, the initial giver, second, the regular giver, and then you have the tither. Now, of course, we borrow this title from the law, from God's presentation to Israel as to how they were to respond to him with regard to trust, how they were to ensure that their hearts were fully yielded to the Lord in their resources. Now, of course, it was an agrarian culture, so it wasn't like, hey, bring 10% of your paycheck and put it in the tithe plate. It was this language of a tenth, tithe meaning a tenth. Present a tenth. In fact, the attached language was this. Present your first fruits to the Lord. Israel was to present the first fruits to the Lord, a tithe, 
And it would be that by presenting these first fruits, God would bless the whole of it. He essentially told them this, that if you'll trust me with this first tenth, I will make the remaining 90% in your hands much more than the 100% you could have ever made on your own. That's his language to Israel. And so the tither is somebody who has wrestled with the scripture. The tither is somebody who says, I want to honor God. I want to follow Jesus in his ways. And a tither can be rather legalistic, literally. I got $4,000 on my paycheck this last week, so here's $400. But a tither really is armed not with a legalistic accounting of what's in our possession, but with a heart that just says, Jesus, you're everything, and so here's my first fruits. So we live in the day and age where I, I literally pay every one of my bills with bill pay through Bank of America. I've, I write very few checks anymore, but I still write my tithe check. Because I, I want this to be an act of worship. I don't want to hit one button, but I want to write my check and say, Jesus, everything I have in my hands is yours. Everything I have is because of you. So here, here. I'll never forget in our very early years of marriage, I mean, I think for the first six years, Jennifer and I were in pastoral ministry, we made $24,000 a year. A very meager pastoral salary. And so I remember the very first year we were married, I went to an accountant because I was terrified of doing my own taxes. What I now know is I literally could have done my own taxes in five minutes. <laughs> that's, that's how easy they were. But I was terrified that I would do something wrong, so I went to an accountant and paid money I didn't have to make sure I did, the, did them correctly. And he, I remember making this statement to the accountant. I said to her, I said, oh, if you were to tell me we were getting something back, oh, I would be so happy by that. Things are so tight. And she looked. She looked at the giving statement we had to our church, and she said, well, why are you giving so much to your church? Oh, she was like, put off by my statement about things being tight and me giving to the church. And I said, oh, well, very simply put, I just don't believe that's mine to keep. And she said, whatever. And she moved on, right? That's what she said. I didn't go back to her. That was the last time she did my taxes. This is a very different way of handling money and possessions. Our culture won't understand it. Our culture will tell us, give if you have something left at the end. Jesus tells us, trust me with the very first because I'm taking responsibility for you. Don't let your money have your heart. Let me have your heart. Four stages to growing in stewardship. Initial giver, regular giver, tither, and number four, extravagant giver. I'm almost done. You've been kind to listen to me for so long. God is an extravagant giver. My wife and I have a goal that every year we would give more away. Every year we, we celebrate. I do our taxes, and so it's mostly me celebrating um, because I'm just always relieved when <sighs> we're okay for another year, right? But, you know, the great accounting is, of course, when you sit down to do your taxes and you put all your charitable giving in. 
And our goal, of course, is that we would give away more every year. That's our goal. And so far, so good. We just want to join Jesus in being extravagant givers. Extravagant givers. The first fruits belong to him. Lord, our offerings belong to you. Lord, where, where do we see need in, in someone's life that we're attached to that we can just go before them and make, make a way where, where there isn't a way right now? Extravagant giving. Can I just tell you a story about extravagant giving that I heard this week? I spent this week in Kona. I don't look tan enough. I know. I'm a little perturbed about that. I spent a fair amount of time in the sun. I'm not sure how it doesn't reflect more on my skin. But I spent this week at the YWAM base in Kona. If you're not familiar with YWAM, it stands for Youth with a Mission. And they have a lot of traveling pastors, evangelists, ministers coming through. And an author most of us would be familiar with, a Christian author, came this week. And this story he would never tell publicly. He would never tell this story publicly. And the only reason I know about it is because my brother, who was the keynote speaker at one of the discipleship schools, heard this behind the scenes from the recipient of this, not from the giver. But um, one of the base leaders there, his wife was in an automobile accident. They had a 2015 Honda Odyssey. And somebody was texting and obliterated the van. Thankfully, everybody was okay, but the van was totaled and gone. And so this space leader was asking, Lord, we just, I mean, insurance isn't going to give us enough to replace this vehicle. They have six kids. He's like, Lord, I, I just, I don't even, I don't even, what, what, Lord. And he said, and he just discerned, he said, just trust me, ask of me. He said, okay, Lord, here's my request. It's a fanciful request. I just ask you for a better van than the one we had. <laughs> so what he prayed. At the very same moment, that very same morning, this guest speaker was praying with his wife. And it was put on, what they had known is that they had lost, this, this other family had lost the van. And so the Lord just put it in their hearts. Go buy them a new one. So they went down to the local dealership. They paid cash for the van. And then they came and they got this base leader and said, come here, we want to take you to a dealership. Everything's already situated. We just want to make sure that this suits your family. If it doesn't, we'll find another one. It's all taken care of. So they get to the dealership and get this. What they had was a 2015 Honda Odyssey. What had been purchased completely on their own was a 2015 Honda Odyssey with three upgrades that their old van didn't have. <laughs> I mean, two, within 24 hours, God answered with a better van. But isn't that such a moving story that, that we could pray and say, Jesus, how can we help? And as we would have the means to do it, as we have a heart equipped by generosity, and here's the deal. I don't care how much money you have in your pockets. If your heart isn't already bent on being as generous as we can possibly be, you would never consider doing this. Let's go and buy them a van. I just think that's remarkable. When I, was, when I was 19 years old, I'm going to conclude with this story. When I was 19 years old, I was desperately in love with Jennifer. She's my high school sweetheart. I was going to college. I was studying for ministry in Southern California. I was raised uh, 
I was the son of parents, you know, lower middle class. We had everything we needed. We didn't have much, much beyond that. I was going to a ministry school that was solely focused on producing pastors, teachers, worship leaders, missionaries, and so they refused to actually allow students to, to take out loans because the idea was this, you're probably not going to be making a lot of money in your near future, and it will hamstring your considerations of what you'll say yes to, and we don't want that. We just want you free to follow where Jesus would lead you. So... I had to pay for college as I went. Now, compared to what costs are today, it, well, it's small. It was small. But nonetheless, it was huge to me. My parents helped me as much as they could from the very first moment I started going to college. I had to work a job. My freshman year, I worked at a bagel shop. My second year, I worked at In-N-Out Hamburger. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I hated working there, but I got a free burger and fries every time I worked there. That was worth it. I did not know, every month, I did not know how my bill was going to get paid. Between my parents' help and my income, it accomplished a fair amount of it, but it didn't accomplish all of it. I just didn't know. So there was a dependency on Jesus, who I thought had called me to be here where I was. There was a dependency on Jesus. Add to that this fact that I, I was dating this beautiful girl. Her father had given me his yes I really wanted the opportunity to ask her to be my bride. Now, she made something very plain to me, by the way. This will tell you something about Jennifer and I. She told me when we were in high school, she said, I follow Jesus, not you. Yeah. <laughs> but she said that in this context. You're going off to ministry school, and you may want somebody who just wants to go to ministry just to be a pastor's wife. But I'm going to follow Jesus for myself, and if he allows us to be together at some point, we will. So she went off, and she started doing missions. Well, she had told me. She told me. She goes, I think I'm going to come to the same ministry school. And so I thought, well, perfect. We're going to be together. Let's finally get married, right? We've been dating for three years. So I'm, I'm not able to pay my, my college tuition, and I don't have any money to start saving for a ring. So I'll never forget, uh, I called my dad who's as dear to me as any human on the planet. And I just, you know, in one of these moments, like, Dad, I'm so stuck. And you know, you know what he took me to? He took me to Luke chapter 12. I said, Chris, just remember the lilies of the field. Don't ever wonder about your value. Pour your heart out to God, he told me. The Lord takes responsibility for you. He sees you. And he'll go before you and make a way. Your job is to trust him. He could do it tomorrow. It may take a few years. But you pour out your heart to God. He'll attend to you. So I did. I remember I wrote in my journal. I still have it. Jesus, I really want to marry Jennifer but I have no resources to do so. How? Question mark. Guess what happened? I st suddenly started receiving scholarships I didn't apply for. <laughs> My tuition every month was paid. Not only that, out of the blue, 
Within a week, I got a check, a check for $300 from a family member in our church. A family member meaning uh, they were part of the larger faith family. They weren't my family, but they were part of our faith family. And they just said, Chris, at the end of, end of the day, we have some extra resources, and we know you're training for ministry, so can we start sending you money every month? <laughs> that was the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I set that check aside, and then a week later, some family friends down in, in Southern California who kind of adopted me, they had me over for dinner, and they said, hey, listen, um, we got a big tax return, and we've given to the church and some missionaries and stuff, but here, and they gave me a check for multiplied hundreds of dollars. In a few weeks, I had enough money set aside to walk down to the jewelry store and purchase the, the ring for my soon-to-be bride. Jesus is the only one who made a way for that because he heard my heart. He sees me. He knows me. He values us. Oh, he values us. He values us. So, Father, thank you for the word of God. And thank you that you teach us a different way in this world than the one that so many of us once subscribed to. Thank you that your way is always better always marked with life and is a way full of the joy we so desperately want. Would you teach us your way? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.